Welcome to the B-Team Bible Study from a very soggy Houston, Texas. I am your host, Kristen Noop. Ah, the honeymoon period, those blissful early days of a friendship, a new romance, or even a new project or idea where everything is exciting and new. Things are clicking, you're in discovery phase, and around every corner is a new treasure. Your brain is quite literally on drugs as you entertain all the wonderful possibilities, for you have certainly landed a seat on a high-speed train running non-stop service to Utopia. When reality sets in, we discover a few new things, like what kind of stuff we are made of. Do I have the grit to stick with something or someone I care about? And second, we begin to notice and hopefully exercise, maybe for the very first time, all kinds of amazing tools that God equips us with when the going gets tough. We've said it a thousand times, the book of Acts is all about the unstoppable power of the Holy Spirit spreading the gospel to the ends of the known world. But subtext, sub-theme, Acts is also about the gift and power of the ministry of reconciliation. Hear these words from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Pause. What he means here is we don't see the divisions and statuses that separate us from a worldly perspective. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Forgiveness. Can you imagine? It is really hard to hit that tune quite right. But forgiveness, reconciliation, being united together again. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. World, be reconciled to God. And church, be reconciled to one another. God has made all this possible for people from all kinds of different backgrounds, even sworn enemies, to be reconciled to their creator and to one another as they pledge their allegiance to the true king of kings and the kingdom of love. This was such a subversive message back in the first century under the Roman emperor It's also pretty radical today. Where is our allegiance? What is our true value system? These are things that the church is wrestling with during an election year. But that is a whole nother subject. Why am I saying all this about honeymoon stuff? Because today we are going to read about the honeymoon high of the early church. This new romance with each other and with God has them living as their best selves, devoted fully to kingdom values. And the impact of this this synergy, this unity, it's remarkable. Lots of people will say that what we're about to read about today from Acts chapter 2, that this is the model for church. I take it a couple of clicks down from that. I say that this is first descriptive of what the glorious early days of the first century church looked like, not necessarily prescriptive of what the church in 2020 ought to look like. 
to make a statement like that, that this is the model for church at all times and places, we need to do boring things. Well, for me, they're super exciting, but things like really good exegesis, which is a fancy word for deep, historical, linguistic, contextualized study of the biblical text, and examine this text and these claims in light of other biblical passages and how they exhort the church, which is to um, guide or encourage how they exhort the church to be. Yes, there are a lot of similar themes in here to what we see advocated in scripture about what a healthy community of faith looks like. And probably from our own experience, we see patterns of familiarity from times of spiritual highs in our own life. In my Bible study last night, when we talked about this, someone referred to this section of scripture as a kind of map for a healthy faith community. I like that. However, even the early church couldn't sustain this honeymoon period forever. People are people, after all, even with the Holy Spirit, even with forgiveness and reconciliation and freedom from our sin nature. Because deception, betrayal, division, and discord would soon enter in. I know, sad. This doesn't diminish what God can do in any way. It only underscores what we already know about what we can do, which is to let that sin nature take the reins at times, urging us to give into our fear. I don't know, maybe it's the weather that's making me all doom and gloom, but what I can say is this. Yes, we have a tendency to make a mess of things, but God knows that. God knows that we screw up, that we hurt each other, that we blow it. So God gives us tools like reconciliation and promises that nothing is lost, even our suffering. And I say that with a lot of tenderness. Even our suffering, like when someone from church hurts us, has potential, dare I even say, purpose. In 2 Corinthians again, this time chapter 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Yes, even our first world problems. It says all our affliction. There is no qualifiers here. So that, kind of a purpose clause, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we abundantly share in comfort too. Your church isn't perfect. Even this church, so shiny and new, wasn't perfect. But God knew that. God knows that. We love this scripture because it shows us what community can be like when his priorities become our highest priorities. But God also gives us opportunities to confess and repent and be reconciled, even to know that our suffering, even at the hands of church, can be a part of God's world-redeeming adventure. And so with that somewhat somber intro, let's read our scripture for today. Remember, it's still the day of Pentecost. Peter has just given the most powerful sermon of his life, and the crowd wants to do something about that burning in their soul. Picking up in Acts chapter 2, verse 41 from The Message. That day, about 3,000 took him at his word, were baptized, and were signed up. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal, and the prayers. Everyone around was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles and all the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple followed by meals at home, every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. People in general liked what they saw, and every day their number grew as God added those who were being saved.
Okay, I have to admit, this really is a dream text for a Bible teacher because it lays out a clear path to follow that map, a set of spiritual and communal practices. And maybe, just maybe, if we do those things too, we can enjoy the impact and fruit that they did. Oh, sounds so glorious. So let's look at those practices. What were they about? If you have your Bible open, go ahead and underline all the activity that you see there. So for starters, they were baptized. Through the symbolic cleansing of water, washing away their sin and old life, they were made new in Christ. Baptism is an outward ceremony representing an inward reality. They were all in, a private confession and asking God for forgiveness and a public memory they can look back on when they became a new member of the family of God. They made it a priority to learn about the faith, committing themselves to the apostles' teaching, but not just learning about this God as a philosophy among many, but to apply their learning in their daily lives. They were eager to yield their lives to this wisdom of God that the apostles clearly possessed. They were committed to fellowship, a super churchy word that I actually really love, which simply means the company and companionship of other believers. They were committed to doing life together, as some people like to say. They were about sharing meals together, probably both fellowship meals like getting together for potlucks as well as celebrating the Lord's Supper together or communion, the whole do this in memory of me thing that Jesus instituted on his last night before his arrest, trial, and execution. You can read about it in the Gospels. Uh, Luke 22, starting at verse 14, is one of those places. Okay, so far we have baptism, learning, uh, being together, applying the teaching to their life, fellowship, communion meals, celebration, and now prayers. It says they were devoted to prayer. So far in Acts, I have seen prayer totally transform Peter. In times of prayer, he discerned which scriptures explained the miraculous events at Pentecost. Through prayer, he discerned that a 12th apostle was needed to replace Judas after his betrayal. Through prayer, this man who was once a hot-headed, impulsive, uh, who possessed the meager education typical of a backwater fisherman of the day. I'm sorry, Peter, I'm making a point here. But through prayer, this man was transformed. He's different. He possesses a strength, a calm, a presence that is undeniable. That is the Holy Spirit at work, further activated through the discipline of prayer. Here's what I mean by that. Spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices, things like prayer, worship, fasting, simplicity, meditation, Bible study, service, they are not ways that we earn God's love. We don't get any gold stars for praying every day. You might think of these practices as means of grace, well-trodden, sacred pathways designed by God for our good to help us journey in our growing intimacy with him. These are avenues through which the love of God can be poured into our hearts. Can God suddenly flood your heart with love and peace while you're sitting at a stoplight scrolling through your phone? Absolutely. However, it's probably more likely to happen when you've made the effort to say, hey God, it's me again, rough week over here again. I'm scared about what the doctor might say when he calls me back with my test results. I'm worried about my husband, he's not sleeping. I'm also pretty tired and I just need some help. Then you might turn on a worship song and take some deep breaths or open up your Bible to a psalm and slowly read about the faithfulness of God. And in that space, that quiet, that set aside time to practice your faith, you are suddenly filled with the knowledge that God is right there with you. You aren't going through these trials alone. God sees around corners you can't. You have a trustworthy friend and guide. 
and peace and love abound. Prayer is kind of like that, a a tried and true way of opening ourselves up to receive from God. If you're curious about spiritual practices, I'll put a couple titles in the show notes of some books on the subject that have been impactful for me over the years. Okay, back to verse 43. What else are they seeing? Miracles. There were miracles, signs and wonders done by the apostles, which are not elaborated here specifically, but if we go based on what Jesus did and what we see further in Acts, I bet that involved a lot of healing, even restoring people to life like Jesus did, and prophecy. There are some super miraculous things we will encounter in the coming chapters of Acts, some done by the apostles and some done by God on behalf of his church to assist them in their unhindered spreading of the gospel. Things like making Paul not die of a snake bite, an angel that miraculously opens his jail cell, Philip apparates after he baptizes the Ethiopian guy, and a lot more. Uh, Speaking of miracles, how about everyone pooling their resources and supplying for each other's need? Yowza! That alone kind of feels like a miracle. What a radical way to see to it that everyone had what they needed. I don't know how long that particular pooling of resources uh, practice lasted, but it does seem as though a more customary approach to personal property was reintroduced into the church while still maintaining a high degree of radical generosity. They held daily meetings in the temple courts, a very public place that attracted visitors pretty much year-round who might overhear their worship and evangelism, and they retired to various homes for the evening for meals, hanging out with glad and sincere hearts, welcoming new believers into the family. Their life, their message, their humility, integrity, and genuineness, their actual transformation, perhaps from fearful and meek and tribal or controlling and self-centered people into this vibrant, generous, multilingual community of faith was so attractive that the new people were signing up every day. This early church was well-respected by all the people. It's pretty wonderful stuff. Also, I don't know about you, but it's kind of intimidating, all-in kind of stuff. I'm curious, as you read about these practices and this, the life of the early church, what about this is attractive to you? Also, it's safe to admit this, even just in the privacy of your own heart, what kind of turns you off? The things that spark a flame of passion and also the things that arouse our agitation from this passage can be ways that the Holy Spirit is trying to get our attention in 2020 as it relates to being the church today. If I'm being honest, I think I want this like, 30% of the time. I get more introverted every year, and this sounds like a lot of intense people time. I'm very happy in my melancholy moods at times, and this sounds like just a whole lot of joy, joy, joy. Were any of them sneaking off to the desert for silent retreats? What about hanging out alone in their houses making dinner for one from time to time? That's more my speed some days. Okay, but here's something I know. Church and the God-centered life is not just for extroverts. So let's just assume that not everything that they were about is fleshed out fully here. This community had to have worked for introverts, for really all types. Maybe Luke is an extrovert, so he's writing from his perspective. I'm also not so sure about selling all my possessions and pooling my resources. I've seen how some of you spend your money. Get on a savings plan first, and then we'll talk about sharing what I've managed to squirrel away by living life a little more frugally. So yeah, that part makes me a little agitated. But what are you saying to me in that Holy Spirit? Here's what I love. The sense of belonging. It sounds like a place where everybody knows your name. 
Sing it with me. Doom, doom, doom. And they're always glad you came. Yeah, I'd like to be a part of that. Deep friendships over shared purpose, mutual accountability over a shared vision for your lives, and hopefully a mutual commitment to reconciliation when you inevitably get crosswise with each other. I feel like I really got to enjoy that in my college and 20s when we would hang out around the clock, but y'all feel me getting married, having kids, a house, a job. I'm super thankful to have lots of deep friendships still, but we just get to see each other so much less frequently. Has anyone figured out how to do this deeply connected life of daily worship and fellowship while living in a big city with kids? How do you intentionally set up your life to be about that? I want to be listening to your your podcast, frankly. And so maybe it's not entirely realistic for us. Or maybe it is, and we've just chosen other priorities. And maybe that's okay. Because at the beginning, I mentioned how this is descriptive of a time and place in God's story for a purpose, not necessarily intended to be prescriptive for all times and places. I mean, unless it is. I could be totally wrong. It sure sounds like the kind of stuff that would build up a believer's faith and lead to a compelling church community that would attract a lot of people. Is it okay if we get it more piecemeal these days? I've got to think yes, while still remaining flexible and open to how the Spirit might want to convict me to make intentional changes in my current practice. What do you think? Is this the model for the church in all times and places? What do you like about it? What agitates you? What would you be willing to change in your own life to make more space for this? Which practices are strong in your life? Which are weak? What does your faith community do well? And what needs some work? I would love to know your thoughts. You can send me feedback at bteambspodcast at gmail.com. Yes, that's sort of intentionally humorous to me also. Or a lot of you uh, have my cell phone number, so just send me a text. Oh, and if you like this podcast, would you consider rating and subscribing? Thank you kindly. Bye now.